Good afternoon and welcome to the Atlantic Council. I'm Bharat Gopalaswamy and I'm the director of the Atlantic Council South Asia Center. It is my pleasure to be here today with my friends and colleagues, Toby Dalton, co-director of the Nuclear, Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Samir Lalwani, deputy director of Stimson South Asia Program, and Gaurav Kampani, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center. He's also a professor at the University of Tulsa, but we want to claim full ownership of our, um, of our fellow. As you all know, we are here today to discuss the policy options to address the potential of a grand nuclear bargain with Pakistan. Earlier this year, it was rumored that the Obama administration was exploring a nuclear deal with Pakistan. For Pakistan, the deal would essentially be, in quotes, a formal welcome into the nuclear club, in the words of a journalist. Prior to visits by Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif's visit to the US, followed by Army Chief of um, Staff Rahil Sharif, this was the rumor that was floating around. Around the same time, Toby Dalton, who is here, and Michael Crepon from the Carnegie and the Stimson Center published a report titled, in quotes, Mainstream, Mainstreaming a Nuclear Normal Pakistan, which I understand was met with a lot of criticism, to put it mildly. Is that correct, Toby? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but since then, there is an increasing pessimism about the prospects of a deal. Last week, the House Committee on Foreign Affairs hosted a hearing on this subject. What the congressional hearing made clear was the need for intense scrutiny of a possible deal, the geopolitical landscape in which it would be implemented, and the lasting effects of, again, in quotes, a normal nuclear Pakistan. In the region, there are various hurdles to a potential deal, including Pakistan's own willingness to engage with the United States. Those cleavage, I believe, are represented in the panel today, and I hope it will make for a fascinating and enlightening conversations on this very important subject. Without further ado, I'd like to open it up to the experts to provide their perspectives on the issue. So as I have it, Toby goes first. And um, Samir, would you like to follow Toby? And then Gaurav Kampani. Each of them will have a seven to 10 minutes discussion, and then we will engage into a question and answer session. Thank you. OK. Well, thanks, Bharat. It's uh, great to be back at the Atlantic Council. And it's always a pleasure to share the stage with you and my colleagues here. Um, so it's, it's, it feels like it's a little bit artificial to start this conversation from today uh, when the sort of starting point from, for my involvement in this issue is um, several months back and a lot has happened in the intervening period. But um, for, the, for the sake of the, the discussion, I'll, I'll kind of start at the beginning. Uh, why should there be a consideration of a nuclear deal with Pakistan? And, and I use that term in uh, nuclear deal in very vague ways. Um, I think there's, we can be more specific about it as we go along. But I think in general, there's a sense that because of the evolution of Pakistan's nuclear arsenal, there's a growing sense of danger. Um, and that's, that's being felt here and in other capitals, that the, 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 these growing nuclear dangers um, are raising the, the, the possibility of nuclear terrorism or nuclear war or, or what have you uh, in the region. And so that despite the very good work that Pakistan has done on nuclear security and the like over the last several years, um, that its image is starting to change and that the perception of danger is, is also starting to grow and that it is, is, it is a threat to peace and security in the region and internationally. And a lot of that derives, I think, from the recent 
um, sort of announcements about having tactical nuclear weapons, the testing of longer range systems, um, the idea of putting nuclear weapons uh, at sea. Those kind of developments, I think, are, are what is driving this narrative. So this scrutiny has led to some sense of um, a need to think through what the options are. And frankly, the options are not particularly good. Um, if you think about what leverage exists versus what the incentives are, uh, I, would, I would submit that on the, the leverage side, there's very little. Uh, and our record in addressing states um, that already have nuclear weapons with punitive measures doesn't necessarily produce better results. And so in this particular instance, I'm not sure that there's, there's good leverage to be had. Um, and I think in, in terms of Pakistan's priorities, it's you know, in, in speaking with officials there, you get a sense that it's pretty comfortable with, with where it is. It doesn't like the reputational part of this, but it, it has, um, you know, a sense of security that nuclear weapons are, have provided, uh, and that there's very little outside pressure uh, could do to, to change that. Um, but at the same time, the reputational piece does come into play when it comes to joining the nuclear regime. Uh, and in that sense, I think if you were to assess Pakistan's priorities, first priority is to keep India out of the nuclear suppliers group uh, as a member. Second priority is if India goes in to make sure that Pakistan has a way in too. And so that actually does create some set of incentives uh, by way of establishing a path to, to join nuclear regimes. Now, there's a question about whether it's wise to negotiate on that basis. And that's, I think, the, the reason that we're here. And I'll, I'll return to that in a little bit. Um, my sense is that trying to negotiate these things kind of in a vacuum is not going to work. Um, and in part, that has to do with the need for there to be a different internal logic in Pakistan um, in order to accommodate this, these kinds of changes. Essentially, that um, as long as there is a military-driven logic for more nuclear weapons, um, any sorts of, of measures that Pakistan would take would need to take to join this path to the nuclear regime are unlikely, um, unless the change, there's a change in the military logic um, and an understanding of, of nuclear weapons. Um, there's obviously institutional politics and civil-military relations that come into play. In, in thinking through this problem, we tried to have this discussion in Pakistan uh, a year ago. Um, we asked people, OK, you want to get into the nuclear suppliers group. How are you going to do that? And essentially, the answer we heard was, well, we're going to do exactly what India did, which is fine, but Pakistan is not India. And I think there's sort of a cognitive dissonance there that, uh, that exists. Um, so we, we thought, well, there's some potential for Pakistan to join the regime if it were to take certain steps. But what, are, what does the future look like? Um, so we postulated two futures, one, a projection of the status quo in which the security competition that exists between Pakistan and India continues, that the Pakistan military continues to think of deterrence in largely relative terms. That is, any time there's a qualitative or quantitative change uh, in India's nuclear arsenal or a conventional military capability that Pakistan would need to address that in some way, um, that leads to a, a growing arsenal. Um, when we looked at the numbers purely on a fissile material production capability, assuming no other constraints, we came up with the figure that Pakistan could have something like 350 nuclear weapons. Um, again, that's just uh, based on, on fissile material. Others have come up with different numbers, and we can get into why the numbers are different. Um, but at some point, you have to question what additional capabilities actually do for deterrence, and what's the marginal utility of additional capabilities. 
An alternative future also exists, uh, which is that at some point, if there's a recognition that nuclear weapons aren't going to continue to deter at 300, 400, whatever the number is, um, then it becomes possible to think slightly differently about the nuclear capabilities that Pakistan has. Uh, and that if Pakistan were to decide that it's secure uh, in its capabilities in absolute terms, then it opens the possibility for some constraints. Uh, and these kinds of constraints aren't denuclearization by any stretch of the imagination. Rather, it's thinking about what is the optimal uh, number and force posture for Pakistan to have, uh, and then in what does that do in terms of the, um, how the, dipl the diplomacy potential uh, for Pakistan. Well, I would suggest that these kinds of questions aren't really well debated in Pakistan. Uh, what is the optimal number of weapons? What is the right force posture? What you tend to get is um, a, a sense that any self-constraint, any constraint imposed from the outside would somehow compromise national security. Uh, without really thinking through what nuclear weapons actually do provide in terms of national security or even other ways of thinking about national security, but this, this strong feeling that uh, any constraints and any, any demand for Pakistan to compromise will somehow uh, uh, inhibit its national security. But for the sake of argument, if the military were to arrive at an understanding of nuclear weapons that was different than its current understanding, that the number of nuclear weapons that it has today is sufficient or you know, some years down the road is sufficient, uh, that it doesn't need to add more, then diplomacy becomes an option and a nuclear deal, I think, becomes an option. Um, in our report, we suggested five things that Pakistan could do. These were exemplars, not prescriptions or demands. Uh, we suggested that changes in its declaratory policy would be useful, um, that somehow formalizing its recessed nuclear posture and thinking about both numerical and geographic constraints on tactical nuclear weapons would be a useful signal, um, that coming up with uh, limits on fissile material production, given the concerns about the growth potential and its arsenal, uh, would also be useful, um, and that it think about signing the CTBT before India with the understanding that uh, if India were to test that Pakistan would be able to exercise its Supreme National Interest Clause and leave the treaty. Is it wise to seek this path? Well, I think that really depends on what your assessment of priorities is, um, whether you think terrorism is a more important priority or, or other priorities. Uh, depends on your assessment of alternatives and whether we have uh, other measures available to address this sense of concern about the the direction and magnitude of Pakistan's nuclear weapons program. Um, is the status quo better or is it worse than trying to negotiate some sort of deal? Um, what is the impact to the nonproliferation regime from trying to negotiate a deal? Uh, what would the impact be on the U.S.-India strategic relationship? I think there's a lot of important questions that are inherent in this issue that haven't really been adequately addressed and deserve further discussion. Uh, of course, focusing just on Pakistan is also a little bit artificial, and a lot of the criticism that we received uh, is that we didn't address the India side of this question. Uh, we didn't call it a normal nuclear India, we called it a normal nuclear Pakistan. Um, but even so, I think you do have to recognize that because the pathway for Pakistan also depends in some measure on India's membership in the NSG, you have to look at these things together. If there's an open door for India, but a closed door for Pakistan, that essentially limits our policy options. So for me, there is wisdom in thinking about 
a bargain, um, both here and in South Asia. And so I look forward to more discussion about it. Thank you. Samir? Great. So I'll try to pick up where Toby left off. Uh, I wasn't one of the co-authors on this report, but I read it, saw the merits in it, and thought about some arguments as to why this would be beneficial um, for the United States, potentially, uh, potentially for India as well. So I think the sort of the critical one in, in this mix is um, that if a nuclear deal or a, a nuclear agreement where Pakistan sort of took the steps that Toby and Michael recommend, if that occurred, uh, there would be a significant reduction or a potential significant reduction in crisis escalation and nuclear escalation. So if this involved restricting or limiting the production and deployment of Pakistan's tact tactical nuclear weapons, it could reduce some of the, the gravest dangers of crisis escalation that might stem from a cross-border attack, from misattribution of an attack, or simple escalation on the line of control firing, which happens on a routine basis between India and Pakistan. So a recessed posture might mitigate any first strike incentives from Pakistan uh, during peacetime and potentially strengthen crisis stability. Um, I think you know, some of the greatest crisis escalation risks that we see in a future scenario between India and Pakistan come from compromised command and control in the fog of crisis, miscalculation or unauthorized launch, theft or capture of a, missile, uh, of a mobile platform with a functioning nuclear weapon. Those are all risks that are exacerbated by tactical nuclear weapons being deployed in the field and operational. So if there was a way to constrain that or to offer incentives for Pakistan to restrict that operationalization, there would be benefits for all parties involved, for any parties that care about nuclear escalation or are concerned about it, uh, India, the United States, um, other observers as well. You know, in terms of the other planks of the, of the idea of the, of the, so the, it was not quite a deal per se, but things that Pakistan could do that would signal um, uh, steps towards nuclear restraint in, in order to be part of the, a normal, become a more normalized sort of nuclear state. Um, some of the ideas are C of assigning the CTBT, fissile material cutoff treaty, removing objections to that, um, separation of civil, military, and nuclear programs. And all these things are not things that would necessarily be harmful to a country like India. Um, it certainly would reduce pressures on nuclear competition, which in the long run is probably good for India. Ultimately, their objective is to become a great power, uh, and that relies on sort of continued sustained economic growth and developments. And that'll be benefited by not having to be engaged in a nuclear competition with Pakistan. I think the another sort of positive step that can come out of this is it, it can show a path for Pakistan out of isolation or potential perceptions of isolation. I think it, empower, it can empower moderates to counter conspiratorial narratives that exist in some parts of Pakistan that they're boxed in without any potential partners. Um, the idea of containment has been floated, containment, containment of uh, Pakistan. But I think it only creates incentives that take, for Pakistan to take more provocative actions, uh, either to gain more attention or leverage or pull people into the table. Uh, and those are counterproductive for stability, again, in the region. Uh, as Toby alluded to, I think there's also some value in proposing this idea because it forces a debate on nuclear sufficiency. How much does Pakistan need? What mission sets? What are the objectives? And what is sufficient for national security? Uh, and the trade-offs that are involved in that, sort of that, that process. Um, if there ultimately is some sort of calculation that nuclear weapons are an effective substitute for con conventional forces in order to have some economic benefit, and there's some, some in the strategic establishment in Pakistan and the military who argue this, then there's going to be a question about what is the sufficiency of, of the nuclear program that Pakistan has, and when does it start impinging on the economy as well. And so those debates 
were necessary to have. I think the report sparked it. I think the discussion of a nuclear deal sparked it because it allows for Pakistan to sort of weigh the range uh, of uh, its requirements for national security. And I think you know the Iran deal that was signed this summer. It's been made. There's a lot of references to it um, by critics of, of this idea who say that that's not really an appropriate model. The Iran deal did something completely different. It stopped Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. In this case, that can't be offered to Pakistan. Pakistan's not going to roll back its nuclear program. But the point was the, uh, the Iranian nuclear program, the reason we were willing to entertain this deal, despite their support for violent non-state actors, was because it would stop them from acquiring a nuclear weapon that would have a major effect on the strategic stability within the Middle East. The acquisition of the weapon was less of a concern than the impact on strategic stability in terms of its uh, power dynamics vis-a-vis -vis Israel, potential domino effects with the Middle East, uh, with other countries in the Middle East, and with restrictions on US operational freedom. So it's the, it's the strategic effects of it that were the, the greatest concern. The idea behind this would be that there would be a similar logic, that um, if this deal could forestall or persuade Pakistan to restrict some of its tactical deployments or other long-range capabilities that, would, that could have a dramatic effect on the strategic stability in the region, then it might be worth considering. Then it might, it worth be, might be worth prioritizing above uh, other concerns about support for violent non-state actors. And there are two concerns I think I've heard raised um, against so the idea of this. The first is that it rewards uh, a quest for parity um, with, with India. And the second is that it could potentially set back India-U.S. India relations. So in terms of the deal, it would, it would potentially negate any quest for material parity because it would ask Pakistan to send certain costly signals that would, that would be restraints in advance, such as signing CTBT or FMCT, or restraining the tactical nuclear weapons deployment. So those wouldn't really be advancing material parity. What it would do is probably trade some degree of prestige, which allowing it to be part of the club, the same nuclear club as India. And of course, India is not particularly happy about this. But this wouldn't have a mar any sort of significant increase in the material balance of power in the region. Um, and there's no reason to expect that sort of a, m a marginal increase in prestige for Pakistan would have, again, a major strategic effect. In terms of the relations with uh, India and US relations down the road, uh, I think the United States has proved itself quite uh, deft and capable of managing relationships with uh, rival, rival states. We did this with Greece and Turkey. Um, in NATO. We've done this with Japan and South Korea post-World War II to the present. We've managed to maintain a strong defense relationship with Japan and military alliance with Japan while also increasing ties to China both economically but also politically and having a strategic dialogue as well. So it's plausible to make, advance a relationship with one state and maintain good relationship with another even if they are rivals at some level. Um, so for all those reasons, I think there was, it's, worth, it's worth considering the debate. Um, the last part. OK. Um, well, um, without um, necessarily disagreeing with the logic of what uh, Toby and Samir have had to say, I'm going to take a slightly uh, contrarian position. And, and the reason for that being that I don't quite agree. I mean, I agree with the logic of what they're saying. But uh, I think what, um, what a lot of observers um, fail to take into account is the fundamental grand strategy of the Pakistani state. And I don't think Pakistan's nuclear weapons program can be addressed without, uh, without addressing the question or uh, persuading Pakistan to take a step back from its uh, grand strategy that, is, that it has followed over the last 30 years. 
So the, um, the idea of a nuclear deal with Pakistan, where, where Pakistan is accommodated into the family of nuclear nations, has been in the air roughly about since 2010. And at least on the US side, uh, that would entail that Pakistan accept um, some sort of um, 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 a positive movement on nuclear arms control treaties, such as the, uh, the Fissile Material Cutoff Treaty, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, uh, accept certain curbs on its um, strategic and tactical nuclear weapons program in return for um, a nuclear rapprochement with the United States, and also accommodation within the Nuclear Suppliers Group, uh, which lift, in turn, um, restrictions on civilian nuclear trade with Pakistan. And in the past year, there have been rumors that the Obama administration has turned its attention towards Pakistan after uh, pushing, oh, after negotiating, or successfully negotiating a nuclear deal with um, Iran. Now, Pakistan wants a deal similar to the one that um, the U.S. struck with India in 2005, where the U.S., in, in essence, gave India's nuclear weapons program a free pass. And um, Pakistan wants equivalent. And um, it is not interested beyond a point in making uh, positive movements on the Fissile Material Cutoff Treaty and the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty and accept curbs on its strategic and tactical nuclear weapons program, arguing that it should get the same terms as India did. Now, from Washington's perspective, and, and by this I mean uh, from within the Beltway and outside the administration, the three, greatest, uh, the three greatest issues that still be laid down were the, the, the rapidly expanding size of the Pakistani nuclear weapons program, uh, the scope and ambition of the Pakistani nuclear weapons program, as well as um, the danger, the, the, the potential danger of an implosion within Pakistan, a political implosion or a partial breakdown of the Pakistani state, or partial state failure in the future that could in the future create a potential terrorism incident, a nuclear terrorism incident. Now, um, so it, from Washington's point of view, if Pakistan um, must make progress in nuclear treaties and norms, accept arms restrictions to reach a nuclear bargain with the US and the NSG more broadly. And the Carnegie Endowment and the Stimson Center that published a report earlier this year you know, uh, reiterate these points in, consider in, in considerable detail. Now, this approach is very sensible, but it misses the fundamental point that there is an underlying linkage between Pakistan's grand strategy and its nuclear um, trajectory. And folks often point to the fact that the U.S. struck a nuclear deal with India simply because of the potential commercial size of the, um, of the, of the potential size of India's commercial nuclear market, and also because India is a potential balancer to China in, in, in the Asia-Pacific region. But I think what a lot of people um, miss is the fact that India, is a, that India also, that the nuclear deal was made possible because India is a status quoist and a normal power. And by that I mean that India accepts the international status quo. Yes, India has great power aspirations, but it chooses uh, domestic, uh, but it chooses internal and external balancing as a means to uh, acquire great power status, which are considered both, which is considered both legitimate and acceptable in the international system. By contrast, Pakistan is a revisionist state, and a revisionist uh, power is a power that pursues a radical ideology or non-peaceful means to append the international status quo. And Pakistan is revisionist because it seeks to overturn the status quo through the use of force. And the instruments that it deploys are non-state actors that propound a radical Islamist ideology. So there is a linkage between Pakistani revisionism, its arsenal size, posture, and the threats to Pakistan's internal stability. During the past 30 years, Pakistan has used its arsenal to shield itself from the effects of an asymmetric war with India. And Pakistan's instruments for this asymmetric war against India are mainly non-state actors of a radical Islamic calling. India's response to Pakistan's nuclear weapons program, this enabled asymmetric warfare, is the threat to carry a limited conventional war into Pakistan. 
And faced with the theoretical prospect of a defeat on the conventional battlefield, Pakistan has built both tactical nuclear weapons as well as adopted full-spectrum deterrence strategy that will allow it to deal with India on every rung of the nuclear ladder. Hence the idea that we can get Pakistan to give up on tactical nuclear weapons or switch from full-spectrum deterrence to a more modest defensive strategy of strategic deterrence, absent any fundamental revisions in its grand strategy, I would argue, is a fool's errand. My argument is that we are wasting our time asking Pakistan to accept radical changes in its nuclear deterrence strategy and implement arms control treaties and norms. Our goal instead should be to persuade Pakistan to become a normal state and give up its policy of delegating geostrategic goals to radical Islamist non-state actors. Now, if Pakistan were to return to being a status quo-seeking normal state, India would have few incentives to threaten it with an escalatory conventional war. And Pakistan, in turn, would have very few uses of its tactical nuclear weapons. And de-escalation of tensions between the two would then create positive incentives for Pakistan to switch from full-spectrum deterrence to limited strategic deterrence strategy. And as a thought exercise, let us assume, for example, just for argument's sake, that we succeed in persuading Pakistan to accept curbs on its tactical nuclear weapons, and also succeed in persuading Pakistan um, to give up full-spectrum uh, deterrence strategy in favor of a limited strategic deterrence strategy. But this happens absent any changes in Pakistan's uh, grand strategy of territorial revisionism through non-state actors. In this scenario, Pakistan would still remain vulnerable to jihadi blowback effects. Its smaller arsenal would still remain vulnerable to the dangers of an internal implosion or partial state failure. Now, one of the arguments I hear is that in negotiating with Pakistan, we should adopt the approach that the Obama administration adopted towards Iran, where the nature of the uh, Iranian state's radicalism and its support for terrorism abroad was set aside to secure a nuclear deal. This analogy between Pakistan and Iran is very seductive, but I think it's flawed for two reasons. One, first, Iran was ambivalent towards nuclear weapons. This opened the door for negotiations. But there is little ambivalence within Pakistan's strategic establishment on the pursuit of either tactical nuclear weapons or full-spectrum deterrence. Second, in Iran, there was never any causal linkage between the radical revolutionary nature of the state, its support for terrorism, and the pursuit of nuclear weapons. In Pakistan's case, nuclear weapons are the keystone in its asymmetric and revisionist grand strategy. Hence, while it makes sense for us to negotiate with Iran independently of the radical nature of the, um, of the, of the Iranian state and its support for terrorism abroad, I don't think the same approach is valid for Pakistan. In the case of Pakistan, we must take up the nettlesome task of Pakistani revisionism as part of any grand nuclear deal. So to conclude, let me take a step back and put this in perspective. The goal of American grand strategy since World War II has been to promote democracy, market capitalism, and discourage the growth of revisionist powers in the international system. Pakistan fits this last category. Any nuclear deal with Pakistan that treats its nuclear trajectory independently of its revisionist grand strategy would end up treating the symptoms of the disease and not the disease itself. In India's case, we made an exception by downplaying, by downplaying non-proliferation treaties and norms. In Pakistan's case as well, we should downplay the narrow technical non-proliferation agenda and tackle the broader issue of Pakistani revisionism. Normalizing the Pakistani state has the best downstream chance of normalizing Pakistan's nuclear trajectory. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to take a slightly different approach and invite questions from the audience if you have immediate reactions before I jump into my own questions. Uh, 
Raghubir Goyal from India Globe in Asia today. My question is that uh, this is a timely meeting because recently India and Pakistan involved at the highest level uh, in Islamabad, uh, India and uh, Pakistan relations. But at the same time, after a few days, uh, India was told by uh, Saeed and Lakhvi and other terrorists in Pakistan that they will destroy India. So what message you think India should get uh, one official statement sometime and all, including uh, Defense Minister of Pakistan, that uh, if needed, including, of course, General Mushraf, that they will use the nuclear weapons against India. So what is the future of then uh, India and Pakistan relations? And also, do you believe there is a nuclear race in the region? Thank you. Is the question towards the panel? Anybody want to read? Yeah. He's looking at you. Oh, um, <laughs> well, um, so let me ask you, uh, let me answer the second question first. Um, I don't think there is a nuclear race in the region because India is pursuing its nuclear tra trajectory at its own pace. It is not, uh, it is Pakistan that's really accelerated the development of its nuclear arsenal at over twice the speed that the Indians are. The Indians have a series of objectives and they're looking largely at China. They think they have sufficient deterrence against Pakistan. I think uh, in Pakistan, there is greater paranoia vis-a-vis -vis India, um, and, and they've accelerated the program, and they have, by most accounts, a greater number of nuclear weapons in India. The, the fissile material inventory exceeds India's, um, and, um, and most believe that in the operational aspects of the Pakistani arsenal uh, is far ahead of India's. So, um, so, uh, but, in, but, but, but the race implies that there is this interactive dynamic. I don't see that happening. Um, but beyond that, um, I think relations are pessimistic. And um, I do not see the prospects of, uh, it, it's, it's like um, an ugly stability, as Ashley Tellis summed it about a decade and a half ago. And that will likely persist for some time to come. Do any of you have reactions to this? Uh, on the arms race question, I, I agree with the, the sense that there aren't interactive ef effects, um, but there are, at least in a, in a sort of tit-for-tat way. But I think you do see, in the broader security equation, you know, Pakistan reacting to things that India is doing. So, you know, tactical nuclear weapons are ostensibly a reaction to cold start. Um, cruise missiles are ostensibly something that they were developing anyway, but have a logic uh, if India were to develop ballistic missile defense. So I think that you see maybe more on the Pakistani side some reaction to statements, rumors, procurements, et cetera, in India. Um, in India, you don't see the same, I think, kind of drivers. Um, they, they tend to be a little bit different. So it's not, it's, arms race has sort of a specific meaning, and I think it's not an arms race, but there are security dynamics that, that do drive the competition in certain ways. Actually, I mean, I would agree with Toby on that count. That, you know, if you're taking arms race in terms of an interactive dynamic between the two powers, like, for example, between the Soviet Union and the USSR, I don't think that's happening. Um, but the Pakistanis, and in Pakistan, there is this greater sense of threat and the greater sense of, I would call it paranoia. Um, and they do have a very fast, and they are developing their arsenal at a very fast clip. Um, in India, there is a lot of bluster um, and actually, a lot of it comes from the scientific agencies, which very often, um, which make a lot of statements, have a lot of R&D programs that don't translate into operational weapon systems. But in Pakistan, 
um, it is often read as a, you know, programs that will be operationalized and, and the responses. This actually raises an interesting point. Our assumptions about India and Pakistan are quite different in this regard. I mean, we give a lot of credibility. When Pakistan tests a system, we think, okay, that is a system that is going to be operational, uh, whereas there tends to be a greater skepticism about the development pace and trajectory in India. Uh, and so when the DRDO chief says something, we don't always take it that that's uh, something that will happen with any right. measure of speed. Uh, so in this sense, the, the, the rhetoric around Pakistan as the fastest you know, growing nuclear arsenal, in some sense is that you know, Pakistan is a victim of its own uh, coherence and success. Right. Uh, and but but there is a, there's a reason for that, why we don't take India seriously. Sorry. I just don't want it to be. Oh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to say that you know, it doesn't have to just be about um, missile buildups and fissile material buildups. There are ways that arms race can escalate when you're sort of just developing other types of capabilities, so asymmetric capabilities or conventional capabilities. And so if we're saying that Pakistan is reacting to um, some Indian capability of rapid reaction sort of uh, on multiple fronts, whether we want to call it cold start or something else, um, that's, that can sort of be part of an action-reaction cycle. Or there's a lot of talk in India these days about developing or improving special operations forces capabilities. Uh, if that becomes a possibility, then that be able, is able to sort of subvert Pakistan's deterrence as they see it, which then can sort of lead to counter-reactions. So uh, in that sense, I think there's definitely a reactionary cycle on both sides. Harlan? Could we uh, broaden the discussion just a little bit to talk about India, Pakistan in terms of potential strategic nuclear discussions, disarmament reductions, confidence-building measures? Um, and I realize that Track 2 has been doing a lot of this. The Belusa Group has been at this for years with no success. And I know that the answer to my question may be nothing. But what do you think it would take to induce both India and Pakistan to sit down and begin discussions about being sensible over the nuclear issues to put in place confidence-building measures and other things that would alleviate a crisis in the event that a new Mumbai takes place, something happens in Kashmir, and by accident or whatever, both sides are at the brink, and now you've got Pakistan with more than a handful of theater nuclear weapons. Sure. Um, my, my sense is that there are several prerequisites. One is politi political leadership in both sides that has the uh, wherewithal, the credentials, uh, the support from the military establishment, particularly in the case of Pakistan, to be able to have that kind of dialogue. Um, that hasn't really existed, um, you know, arguably existed in 1999, but hasn't since then. Um, there have been a number of working level discussions over the years about confidence building measures, but mostly they've been um, you know, how to implement things that were agreed in the past. And there are a number of obvious things on the table that could be added. Uh, for instance, the, the, there's a notification regime about conduct, conducting ballistic missile tests. It's been you know, patently obvious that adding cruise missiles to that is very good. Um, there's an agreement uh, to provide every year uh, a list of uh, nuclear facilities and agreement not to attack those facilities. Um, adding to that uh, an agreement not to use cyber means to attack nuclear facilities would also be good. So there's obvious incremental steps, but I think the, the, the big missing thing that would actually get you from confidence building measures to some you know, arms control, broader restraint regime is uh, political will. 
uh, and um, it's you know partly that's will uh, and an ability to take uh, and accept risk. Um, just very difficult in both systems to, to do that. Some, you want to go? Do you want? No, good. I think um, you know looking back at the case of the U.S. and the USSR during the Cold War, I think. Um, Serious arms control really happened towards the end of the 1960s when uh, both countries reached a certain plateau and reached, um, there, there, was a mature, there, there was a certain maturity in the development of the arsenals. It had reached a certain maturation point. Um, I would like to think in one sense, I mean, that India and Pakistan are still in the process of arriving there and they have not had a kind of a Cuban missile crisis that has concentrated the minds of the political and military elites of the dangers of a potential nuclear conflict. It's all in theory yet. And unless, and you know, that would be a catalytic condition that might concentrate the minds. You know, there's that famous saying, nothing um, concentrates the mind of an individual unless the prospects of being hanged in the morning. And so I think maybe, well, I know it sounds um, rather ominous, but they haven't had that kind of a Cuban Missile Crisis that really concentrated the minds. And I don't think the arsenals have reached a point of maturity that both sides can seriously start talking about what sufficiency means and how they might stabilize that competition. Do, do you think there is a point, given your assertion about Pakistan's grand strategy, is there a point at which there would ever I, be a sufficient? You know, I, I, I hope so. Uh, uh, you know, in their splendid report, for example, they actually laid out the economics of what Pakistan is doing. And I would hope that at some point it would, that structural, you know, I would hope that it hits home. So I'm, I'm skeptical, but I still hope so. Yeah. I wonder if the, just one other point, um, I wonder if it's actually not so much a, a strategic level, at the strategic level that there has to be some sort of breakthrough, but it's actually at the sources of instability, more at the subconventional level, that there needs to be some assessment that that is no longer uh, a viable uh, means of conflict. Uh, maybe that's not, maybe that amounts to a change in grand strategy, I don't know, or maybe it's just an assessment that that's, um, that there's now deterrence operating at some level uh, there, but that might create the, the means for um, different kinds of, of confidence building that then could translate into strategic arms control. We'll come back to that. Yeah, okay. So. I'll, I'll just add that, you know, I think Garv's point, Garv's point is well taken, particularly when you talk to Indians about sort of the relative priority of threats. Um, the focus is still on sort of, and maybe this is sort of like a signaling device to U.S. interlocutors, but they constantly emphasize the terrorism issue above nuclear escalation risks. And so when you talk about sort of what the logical, sort of like the great, the, the big risk out of sort of the terrorism scenario that provokes some sort of crisis and mobilization towards the border is the nuclear escalation scenario. They're pretty dismissive about that risk, that somehow things will be controlled, somehow things will be contained or managed, and they won't sort of like illuminate why they think that is the case, but they're much more sanguine about uh, control of those escalation risks. And uh, maybe it does sort of require some sort of crisis to then focus the minds on thinking through, um, you know, clear signals and uh, clear red lines. Ashish. Ashish. Yeah. Uh, hi. Uh, thank you. Uh, Ashish Sen with the Atlantic Council. This is for the panel. Uh, I wanted to ask you. Uh, Could you speak into the mic? We can't hear you. So I can you hear me? So I wanted to ask you, what impact does Pakistan's nuclear relationship with China have on U.S. leverage with Pakistan? And do you see a role for China to change Pakistan's strategy? Thank you. 
I actually want to couple that question with my question and with one of my own questions. And this is directly to Toby. And Samir, you can feel free to comment on it if you want. In your report, I, I read, when I read your report, I saw you had listed a whole range of challenges associated in striking a deal with Pakistan. And you've pointed out that Pakistan's nuclear commerce is also less incentivizing. And the report, you also, also point out that the Pakistani position is hardened since 1998 test. And the evidence that, that you've gathered suggests that Pakistanis feel feel compelled to compete against India. So, and coupling that Chinese, you know, that, that they have a healthy cooperation with the Chinese. In this context, why would you think that Pakistan would subject itself to this sort of a deal? Mm -hmm. Depends on what you mean by deal. Um, the, the, nuclear, but, the, the grand nuclear bargain. Sure. Um, so I, let me address the commercial piece first. I think it's absolutely the case that, um, you know, Pakistan's nuclear energy requirements, uh, as it defines them, are being met by China, um, largely by way of ignoring the r rules in the nuclear suppliers group. Um, and it's hard to imagine a circumstance where there was a nuclear deal that would change that in some way. And so I think that, that set of incentives that had existed in the case of India, although I, I take Gaurav's point that um, that was only part of the, the rationale for that deal, um, that essentially doesn't exist. It's, it's hard to imagine. Uh, a vendor other than Chinese vendors that would have the um, sort of state backing and tolerance uh, to invest in Pakistan. Um, you know, nuclear reactors are expensive and Pakistan is short on capital. Um, most wouldn't want to assume the liability of a very large infrastructure project there. The Chinese seem to, to be able to do that. So I think the, the net result of that is that not only because Pakistan is not a very good nuclear market uh, and because China is essentially satisfying that nuclear market and would under any circumstance, there's, there's not a lot of incentive there for others to argue for a nuclear deal um, because of that. But your, your other question about whether China might have some leverage I think is an interesting one. Um, and You know, there, there's a history of Chinese involvement in the Pakistani nuclear weapons program, and it's been written about. Uh, there are very strong beliefs in India that that cooperation continues, that the Pakistani tactical nuclear weapons are essentially a product of Chinese cooperation. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, if that were true, it would be a violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, and so I suspect that um, it's the if there's truth in it, it's not as expansive as the Indian claims are. Uh, but it may very well be the case that, that um, China and Pakistan are collaborating on, on missile guidance, other sorts of things, you know, who knows. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's evidence there, I'm, I'm just not aware of it. Um, and so that kind of raises a question about whether China would have incentive, given that it's aided Pakistan's nuclear weapons program in the past, ostensibly um, or, or presumably for reasons having to do with balancing India in some way, why would it seek to restrain Pakistan in some way? And so I think the answer there is if it becomes apparent that what is happening in Pakistan has some potential to damage Chinese interests as well, um, whether there are economic interests in Pakistan, uh, whether it's the potential that uh, terrorists 
trained in Pakistan carry out some attacks in China, uh, for which there's there's some evidence that the Chinese have pressured the Pakistani government in the past. Um, you know, you can see a logic there where Chinese perceptions of this problem might start to change. Um, it's not clear to me that there has been an event yet that would precipitate that, um, but you can imagine that there, there could be. Um, so maybe in the future, it's, it's possible that, that China might be a source of leverage. Um, but at this point, it seems to take the opposite approach, which is to essentially ignore what's happening with the Pakistani nuclear weapons program and continue to focus on large infrastructure projects like the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and the like, uh, and, and not use that uh, in, in any sort of leverage terms. Similarly, if, if you draw a parallel to the China-North Korea relationship, I think you see there a pattern of behavior that would um, suggest caution uh, in thinking that China might be willing to use leverage over one of its um, neighbors and partners uh, in the future. Can I just uh, add a little to that? So I, I, I quite agree with Toby on that. Uh, We're supposed he, to be opposing here, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, everything China has done so far has contributed to the autonomy of the Pakistani program. And, um, and so, you know, I really don't see that happening in the immediate future, except um, I'm, I'm just thinking of scenarios. You know, one scenario could be, you know, what Toby pointed out, that Pakistan becomes extremely un unstable and there is the prospect of a domestic implosion, a partial state failure, and then the Chinese feel concerned that that might have spillover effects and of a nuclear terrorism incident. That's one scenario. The other is that at some point, the, China, you know, the Indians accelerate their nuclear weapons program and China feels threatened and, you know, decides that uh, it needs to acknowledge the Indian program openly uh, and come to some sort of a, a modus vivendi with the Indians, and that might then open the door for some sort of a, a triangular sort of, or, or, you know, stabilizing the competition between the three. There's also a possibility, I mean, China may have played sort of a, maybe a negative contributory role uh, in the past, and even potentially in the present, but there's also a potential for things, things to change over time. So we know that for a long time, China was silent about Pakistan's sort of dalliance with not, uh, violent non-state actors. Apparently, they were sort of at least one of the um, pressure points for the Lal Masjid operation, which then sort of precipitated a whole bunch of other counter-terrorist operations. There's a lot of suggestions that they might have had some pressure on the Pakistani government for uh, Zarbi Azab as well. So uh, it's possible that they can sort of play that leverage role that the U.S. may lack. And I'd also add to that they are investing a significant stake in the Pakistani landmass with substantial number of workers that are going to be deployed into this massive construction, massive set of construction projects. So they are more at risk uh, in future escalation scenarios than they have ever been, which probably gives them a stake in escalation control more so than they have ever been. I would add one other thing on China, if I could, which is that um, you know the nuclear suppliers group operates by consensus, and so if India is going to join, it will have to be with Chinese support and. Uh, the Chinese government has been uh, fairly quiet on this subject, um, at least publicly, um, but there was one statement from the foreign ministry, I think in the spring, um, that was actually about Pakistani membership, not Indian membership, but the reply that came back was that there essentially needed to be a way to handle the question of non-NPT state membership in an equitable way, um, which suggests to me that, um, you know, I don't know what the extent of, of Pakistan-Chinese conversations on this issue have been, but that China will protect Pakistan's interests in that regard and, and try to keep the door open uh, in, in some way. So it's, it's important that we think about 
Chinese interests and what it can and can't do on this question, recognizing that uh, our interest, the, the stated U.S. interest in having India inside the NSG may run up against China's interests. Um, so, a question for the panel. So, if the if the this pileup in the growth in the Pakistan's nuclear arsenal is driven by its uh, maybe a sense of insecurity within the establishment, what could the United States do to reduce that sense of insecurity that might lead to a, a change in behavior? Do you want to go first? Um, I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, if I were to be provocative, I mean, I would almost say that Pakistan's sense of insecurity is pathological. Um, and I just think that its military is operating on its own belief systems that are not shared outside. So I really don't know what the United States can do. All the US can do is supply you know, high-tech conventional weapons, which it tried in the past, which it, had, which it tried right through the 1980s. Um, and even today, if you look, um, actually there have been some very interesting, there's been a very interesting study that came out last year that actually looked at the conventional balance between India and Pakistan. And the gap, at least um, in the immediate short term, is actually narrowed. And Pakistan can do a much better job defending itself against India than most people like to imagine. But, but if there is this paranoia and, this, you know, and if it's driven by this pathological belief of Pakistani security, I don't see um, how, what the United States could really do. Unless um, um, the United States really threw its weight behind trying to change Pakistani grand strategy. Because unless you have, unless, it, unless Pakistan wanted to give up that whole role of seeking revisionism and changing the status quo, it would not be a satiated power. And if you're not a satiated power, you're constantly going to feel under threat. Because you're provoking a crisis that, that feeds into your threat, and it becomes an endless cycle. Samir? So I think a lot of this, this depends on sort of how you categorize Pakistan as a state. Uh, Garvis can categorize them as a revisionist power. But even within revision, we use a dichotomous term of revisionist versus status quo power. But there's really gradations in between, right? Iran was a revisionist power in 1979. You can argue that they still are, but they're probably not the same type of revisionist state that they were in 79. Same with Mao's China versus post Deng Xiaoping. So there are gradations of change and learning that states can adapt uh, to um, international sort of relations, structures, stimuli. Um, so I think it's one, it's feasible to sort of imagine scenarios in the future where the revisionism can sort of abate over time. Um, but if, if we thought about sort of what Pakistan identifies as their core sort of security threats, um, it's based on sort of a territorial dispute between, with India uh, where there's large numbers of forces concentrated. So one of the paths out of this, it may not sort of be a bright for solution right now, but one of the paths out of this down the road is a renewed dialogue that eventually tries to resolve some of the territorial disputes that have large military forces involved that are then ultimately threatening each other. Uh, and that sort of could at least be a confidence building measure that can then start to unwind some of the revisionist narratives that Garv is attributing to the, to the Pakistani state. I, I would also, I guess, um, you know, for the sake of argument, uh, challenge the, the sort of black and white uh, revisionism. And I think, you know, the idea that Pakistani grand strategy is immutable is, is not um, a correct one. Uh, and I think there's a fair amount of evidence at this point that should cause us to question this, this um, you know, commitment to, uh, as some have called it, jihad under the nuclear umbrella. Um, that, you know, whether it's the current operation uh, Zarbi Asp or 
um, you know, the, what we've seen happen with Lashkari Jangvi. Um, you know, much is made in Pakistan of the fact that there hasn't been another um, major attack in India since Mumbai, that there is, um, you know, some desire to assert, um, uh, you know, both positive and negative control uh, over groups that in the past had been uh, targeting in India. I think, um, you know, th there's, there's some evidence that, that should cause us to, to question that assumption. Um, but I would also, I guess, challenge your assumption that somehow addressing Pakistan's insecurity is the, the, the key to nuclear constraints. And, and I guess what, what we laid out is a lot of this comes back to what you believe about nuclear weapons. And if you have this absolute faith in nuclear weapons, then no amount of security is going to, to change that and no amount of insecurity is going to change that. But if you start to, to question what nuclear weapons do and don't do and what they could and could not deter um, and how many of them and, and how they're postured, then, then you can maybe still, you know, there, there may not be a need to address uh, the, the sources of insecurity. And I think what, what, um, what we had suggested in our report was that, you know, the, the faith in Pakistan that tactical nuclear weapons are going to deter conflict at a very low level may not be correct. Uh, and that's kind of a dangerous assumption. Um, you know, India did not do cold start after Mumbai. That may or may not have had something to do with Pakistani nuclear weapons. They didn't have tactical nuclear weapons at that, at that point in time. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's reasons to, to question how much, how many nuclear weapons are, are, are sufficient. Um, and I would hope that that conversation is happening inside Pakistan. The, the problem is that whereas in many states there's, um, you know, shared responsibility for nuclear weapons that allows for some discussion and debate about the size of the arsenal and the force posture and readiness and these kinds of things. Uh, in Pakistan, that sort of those external stimuli don't really exist. These conversations happen solely within the military. There's no real, um, you know, there's, there's civilians that are involved in the National Command Authority, but let's be realistic, you know, most of the requirements are going to be set by the military uh, and the decisions are going to be made by the military. And so in that sense, there's not um, this um, you know, feedback loop that would challenge very strongly held beliefs about deterrence. Um, but there were strongly held beliefs about militants too. And we, you start to see some reprioritization to focus on internal threats. And so that doesn't, that, that suggests to me that it's possible that thinking can change as you know, evidence challenges uh, some of the assumptions that they make. Um, can I just uh, so, uh, you know, I, I want to address the points that Samir and, and Toby raised. And I, I think they're absolutely correct that there is variation. And, you know, you, you cannot treat uh, revisionist and uh, status quo powers as, as, as a black and white dichotomy. And there is variation. And, um, and, 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 and powers, you know, even revisionist states do um, change over a period of time. And there are various grades of revisionism. One of the things that what the United States could do, would, even if it let us assume for a moment that we accept Pakistani revisionism and Pakistan has a legitimate grievance in its territorial dispute with India. But I think what the United States could really bring pressure is to try and persuade Pakistan is to adopt different means to pursue that revisionism. In other words, give up its, you know, its, its, the support of non-state actors where it has had, there has been some rethinking, yes, we haven't had another Mumbai since 2008, but we don't know whether that's a tactical retreat or it's a strategic retreat or it's a, you know, it's a long-term compromise just for the, for the time being. So if Pakistan would, even if Pakistan would have stick with its revisionism but give up its tactics and strategy to pursue that revisionism, that might have 
of, um, you know, uh, a cooling effect on the region, which would then which would then open the door for the United States to try and persuade the Indians to kind of abandon their cold, cold star doctrine, to threaten Pakistan with an escalatory conventional conflict, which would then create incentives for Pakistan to then, you know, uh, retreat from tactical nuclear weapons. So that, that might be a way out. Hi, Dan Horner from Arms Control today. Uh, I had two questions, both, I guess, coming from points that Toby made initially, so I'll direct it to Toby first. Um, given that it's not, a, as you described it, an interactive arms race, what response by India would you expect if Pakistan, if Pakistan um, took the steps that you recommended in your report? Um, and secondly, on the point about the, the NSG, um, you cited this interesting comment from China uh, about the requirements, and it seemed at the time of uh, uh, Prime Minister Sharif's visit to the United States that there were denials that there was consideration of a, uh, an exception like for India, but it seemed possibly the door open to a so-called criteria-based approach. Do you think that's, that's possible, that's in the cards, or what do you think about that? Thanks. Mm -hmm. I don't understand the question. So the second piece was about criteria and whether there's a criteria-based approach that might um, open up uh, for, for NSG. Um, you know, that, let me start with that. Um, I, I think that that's an interesting... Personally, I support the idea of criteria because I think from a non-proliferation regime point of view, having even criteria for India and for Pakistan is, is better. Um, India could probably meet most of the criteria that could be agreed before Pakistan could, but as a matter of process, I think having criteria versus exception is, is, is better. Um, the problem there is that India has a, a view of its exceptionalism, um, just as there's American exceptionalism, there's Indian exceptionalism, uh, and the, the idea of criteria um, kind of runs up against that. And so I think that that's uh, a, real, a real challenge for the, the Obama administration's approach so far. Um, I, I don't, you know, at this point, um, I don't think the, the idea of the, there being an exception for Pakistan is really what was on the table. My, my sense of what was on the table was, you know, support for the idea that Pakistan could be on a path to, to joining the NSG, but in order to even be on the path, um, you know, there needed to be steps to, to get to the, the first step, essentially. Uh, so pre-steps, if you will. Um, uh, I think that's my sense of that, that was what the, the conversation was about. Um, at this point, it doesn't seem like pre-steps are, are in the cards. Uh, if, if there's steps backwards, if anything, just to extend the analogy. Um, Dan, what was your first question again? Sorry. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, it, the, I would love it if the Indians were to say, wow, this is fantastic. Our security is much better for, for having done this. Thank you very much. Um, but uh, in fact, uh, when Samir and I were in, in India some weeks ago, um, we heard a lot of complaints that uh, we would even dare to consider that somehow Pakistan with nuclear weapons could be legitimate. Uh, and that these kinds of steps in some way might, might um, actually improve India's security. Uh, and how dare we reassert some sort of equivalency between Pakistan and India on these questions. Um, which, you know, on some level isn't surprising, but it also suggests that there's 
for all the Indian professions uh, that status is not um, what they're really after here, the idea that somehow Pakistan could have a similar status then suggests that uh, India is involved with status. So um, I mean, I think the, the, the steps that we suggested, um, there are questions about how feasible those are. Uh, and I think their acceptability in Pakistan is, is pretty low, uh, which is understandable. Um, and so I think in India, mostly they were dismissed as insufficient. Uh, and um, you, that's been the response. Could you walk us through your experiences in Pakistan? Uh, sure. So in Pakistan, uh, there was a lot of interest in the title of the report, the, especially the normal nuclear Pakistan part. Um, but everything after page one was pretty much uh, um, were criticized for, for that. Um, it was suggested that we were somehow advancing India's interests, um, that all of the steps that we had uh, suggested would compromise Pakistan's national security, that um, our assessments of uh, fissile material production were off, uh, that we were completely discounting India's nuclear program, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. <clears throat> Marvin Weinbaum, Middle East Institute. Uh, during the Cold War, uh, there was, certainly in the United States, but I suspect in Russia as well, Soviet Union, uh, a fear of what the consequence of nuclear war might bring. My sense is, knowing Pakistan perhaps a little better than India, that that's lacking, that there is a... Uh, that there is a no willingness, whether it's in uh, civil defense uh, uh, preparations, where you know we we thought a lot about this. You don't see uh, anything not not that one can build bomb shelters, given the kinds of weapons, but you don't you don't get that feeling. And I wonder how much that plays into the inability of uh, both sides to, to perhaps evaluate uh, this nuclear comp competition. And at the same time, what is the sense in both countries, because I've never seen this, uh, and, and the answers may be very obvious, uh, a feeling here about adequate second strike capability. Uh, because certainly that, in, in, in MAD, that ultimately was what the neutral ISO was. It wasn't numbers, but just that neither side could expect to emerge here uh, with very much left. Uh, so if you could explore this. I just want to piggyback that question, and specifically Cold War was mentioned, and the revisionist power. My question is specifically directed at Karov. Um, the United States and the former Soviet Union negotiated the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty you know, at the height of the Cold War, and still the USSR was a revisionist power. So if that worked, why, would, why and what are the differences you see in applying the same logic between U.S. and Pakistan? Well, um, so I'm going to start with his question and come to yours, if that's okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, okay. So that, that's a great question, yes. Uh, the... U.S. and the USSR, you know, there was the detente between the two superpowers during the Cold War. But let's not forget that detente collapsed. And we had a revival of the nuclear arms race until the Soviet Union collapsed. And, you know, until Gorbachev came to power, there wasn't that revisionism in Soviet revisionism in that sense. So arms control really did not take off 
you know, it took off and then it again hit stasis and then it began to break down until the, until the Soviet Union took a U-turn in one sense and then ultimately collapsed. But to get back to, to Marvin's um, uh, question, at least on the Indian side, there is this, um, there's a psychological disbelief that nuclear weapons are instruments of war. It's, it's more of, so it's more that these are um, psychological props in one sense that reinforces um, um, the, um, the psyche of the elite in a crisis or you know, builds up your, or supports your backbone or helps you develop a backbone to put up with nuclear coercion. There is this disbelief that these weapons could ever be used. Um, and which is, and which actually, at, which, uh, and which is kind of ironical because here you are building up operational capabilities on the ground, but at the same time, at the political level, I don't think the political elite recognizes or accepts the fact, or has brought itself to countenance the fact that these are actually usable instruments. Um, that apart, um, I think both countries are pursuing second strike capabilities very, very actively. Uh, on the Indian side, they've gone the big way, um, building up, trying to build up a sea-based arsenal, which is like the gold standard in one sense. And on Pakistan side, um, they have done, a, I think, from a purely um, military perspective, they, they've done a pretty good job building up a mobile um, ballistic missile strike force. And they're not just thinking in terms of second strike. I would argue that they might be thinking in terms of third strikes. Um, which is, you know, Toby, I think um, you talk about this in your report where you have this, um, you know, where they've really gone big and they have these long-range missiles now that can strike any part of India and even beyond, um, which doesn't seem to, you know, which you, and you can only make sense of it if you're theoretically, you've begun thinking in terms, terms of a protracted nuclear exchange with a much powerful, which with a much more powerful nuclear power, which actually India is not, but, but potentially it might be. Um, but yeah, they are thinking in terms of second strike capabilities. Uh, and even so are the Indians, very much so. Uh, you want to go somewhere? Yeah, I think i just pick up on a thread that you, that Marvin, you put out there. So I think you're right that when you have civil defense preparations, it inherently by having procedures for like, you know, duck and cover, going in bomb shelters, something like that, you engage the public in sort of what will be the consequence of an actual nuclear exchange. And it doesn't appear that there has been uh, anything like that, probably because you know there are much higher priorities in terms of what you do with social spending than build bomb shelters in both India and Pakistan, probably you know, cure river, river blindness first or something like that, or polio vaccines. But um, I think it's an important point because oftentimes you hear a lot of strategic elites invoke the public in their discussions and say, our hands are tied because um, if we were willing to sort of uh, back down from our position on CTBT or attack nuclear weapons, we would be lynched. I, I feel like that term lynched is sort of used very liberally uh, in South Asia about sort of what the public will and will not allow. But it's not really clear to me that the public has ever engaged in this debate other than in sort of very, very surface level. So it's possible that the public has sort of very sort of hardline views on nuclear weapons, but I think if we were sort of to push a little bit in terms of what scenarios would be involved, we might sort of see some evidence for the nuclear taboo or some, some evidence that they'd be concerned about sort of the costs of this. Uh, and it's just, that's another area, maybe a potential engagement, maybe it's sort of a, a civil society type engagement that's required, but it certainly is invoked and it certainly does, I don't see any evidence of it actually happening in the public debate. That sector of civil society really doesn't exist. Yeah, that would be true. I would 
just add a couple things to that. Um, I think the, the rise of discussions of consequences were either just slightly behind or in parallel with thinking about what it would actually take to fight a nuclear war, or at least in American thinking and Soviet thinking, I don't know. Um, but you, you saw arguments about you know, fighting a nuclear war and, and the kind of commitment that would be required in, to include civil defenses and ballistic missile defense and these kinds of things. And um, I think that Gaurav is right that in, in India, the you know, political sentiment around nuclear weapons hasn't really allowed for, for that kind of discussion. Pakistan is an interesting case. Um, on the one hand, you have this faith in deterrence and the faith that nuclear weapons will deter even very level, low level conflict, which is interesting. Um, and, and yet you have pretty regular political statements about the use of nuclear weapons, which it, there's a dissonance there and I don't quite understand it. Um, and I think you also see, and I, I, for me the Shaheen 3 is kind of part of the evidence of this over and above tactical nuclear weapons, uh, thinking about using nuclear weapons and, and, and counterforce roles. And that actually starts to lead you down the role of thinking about nuclear war fighting, notwithstanding the protestations that these are weapons of peace and they're meant to deter all conflict and, and so forth. So I think you actually see strains of, of the military logic of nuclear weapons in Pakistan that, that push you down this road. But you're right, there is no civil society that asks or could engage the questions about what are the consequences of, of fighting a nuclear war. Uh, and that is, is really what's, what's lacking. Um, and I think there's been some suggestions I've heard that um, you know, the United States or others ought to try to engage that question in some way in South Asia to you know, make clear the, the scare that we had in the Cuban Missile Crisis or, or so forth and um, you know, finding ways of using the media to do that and so forth. And it's, it's, it, I think it has to come from South Asia. It can't come externally. It has to, that has to be an idea that is you know, specific to the way nuclear weapons are understood there and the, the, the fears that people have. Um, you know, maybe it will take a, a, you know, a Cuban Missile Crisis or something like that to actually um, spur that. You don't, you know, where are the Bollywood movies about nuclear weapons uh, and, you know, so forth. Uh, I just want to add one point. I'm just speculating over here, but um, India and Pakistan haven't had the experience of Europe and the United States and the Russia of the First and Second World Wars where you had millions of dead and where, you know, it was a very real possibility in one sense. It was etched, it was deeply embedded in the psyche of this can happen despite the partition and, you know, the million dead perhaps. Um, but, um, so I'm just speculating. So it's all theoretical. I mean, the wars that have occurred, you know, have been short affairs um, and compared to what happened in Europe over the last century, um, they haven't had that kind of mass scale conflict. And so maybe, there's, a, there's actually one piece of this too, which is that all of our ideas about what constituted unacceptable damage came from the Second World War, um, whereas the idea of unacceptable damage in South Asia is actually very low, I think. Uh, Can I just say yeah. one, one thought on that? It's interesting that, of course, we've got an enormous stake in this too. Uh, if that should happen, I would imagine we would see a, a crisis, a human humanitarian crisis at it. At a, at a level that really we've never experienced before. We could see millions of, of casualties, deaths, uh, and the implications for the international community and its uh, preparedness to then be able to step in to something which would have gone on for months and even years. 
I just, I just hope we don't get there. We, we'll restrict ourselves to the Bollywood but movies. We yeah. but, we, but unless we talk about it, mm -hmm. I think that's the point. Mm -hmm. Unless people talk about it, I don't think that it, it registers. Yeah. Well, can I? Sorry, this is. Quick, uh, quick. Yeah. Well, this is just from um, my conversations with in, with very senior commanders in India's um, strategic forces command. One of the very interesting things comes out is that they're so terrified of the social chaos that that emerges from the slightest whiff in the uh, you know in, in what is normality in Indian society that I think they can't even imagine that it's feasible to kind of take any large scale measures whereby the society could insulate itself from the effects of a nuclear war. Um, I, I think there's disbelief that even if they did and took certain actions, it would be possible to do anything. So maybe they don't, you know, I, I'm speculating here again, but that's what comes out in, in private conversations. Thank you. I'm, I'm Polly Nayak, an independent consultant who's been doing South Asia and these issues for a long time. I wanted to raise the question of uh, command and control and the um, I, what I perceive to be the, largely the absence of discussions of how, if you take out the other side's command and control, you may actually unleash worse results, and how uh, this isn't just a cyber issue. This has a great deal to do uh, with uh, the physical um, distribution of um, not just weapons, but leaders as well, and the continuity of government arrangements uh, for senior decision makers, the ability, their ability to communicate with people in the field. So that, that whole issue seems to me to be another way in which, at least in the public domain, uh, there's very little um, speculation, discussion, imagination. But I, I would like to hear your comments. Who wants to go first? I'd say um, it's related. You know, it sort of piggybacks on the conversation we just had about uh, uh, nuclear war fighting. So I think the Pakistanis, I think, are aware of the fact that they are going to be a significant disadvantage when it comes to ISR capabilities. Um, and the other part about ISR capabilities is that they're not as observable as missile tests or cruise missile tests or fissile material, things like that. And ISR doesn't just have the potential, you know, for it has the potential to enhance a first strike. It has the potential to you know, make a, first, a splendid first strike possible. It's something that we were pursuing during the Cold War. There's some really interesting research that's been done on this recently. It's put out the case that we had the ability, or we thought we had some ability for this because we were tracking Soviet subs and mobile missiles, and we had sort of sufficient ISR capabilities and uh, sources that we were able to maybe think about, contemplate this idea. And because it's not observable, it's possible that Pakistan sort of has a very deep and abiding fear uh, of this. And they have to sort of potential, uh, they have to weigh this potential in the future. If they see the trajectory of the way the Indian military is going, it's much more modernized. And it has sort of these built-in capabilities in civil society. Um, so I think it, they could be much more concerned about sort of this command and control issue faster than the Indians would in, in sort of the lead up to an escalation. Um, on the Indian side, um, I think um, in the Strategic Forces Command that handles the operational side of the arsenal, and now also um, within the Prime Minister's office, they have a strategic planning group. Um, there is um, growing uh, realization of what this, 
means, but they won't talk about it. So it's, again, as Samir said, these are the invisibles, I mean, I mean you know, of, the, of that part of the arsenal, which is not visible, we, don't, we really don't know. But I think that they are paying attention, but we don't know. It's very hard to get, extract information. Uh, Paul, I think you're, you're right. It's, it's a really esoteric issue, um, and it's hard to know how the U.S. or others could have conversations with both sides about that issue. There are some issues about the legality of some of the subjects that you might discuss, uh, given our NPT commitments. Um, you, know, the, you know, the whole PALS thing, I, I don't know how far that extends. I'm sure the State Department legal advisor has a view on that. Um, so that I, it, it's a hard conversation to, to imagine. Um, and as Gaurav said, in, in the public domain, there's just very little information. There's very little information about ISR, too, and, and really the kinds of capabilities that are being sought and um, you know, what the implications of those capabilities are. So as, as analysts, it's a very difficult space to, to work in, but I think you're right to flag it. So with that, I just want to have one final question, bringing back to the whole, the subject of this discussion, the bigger subject of this discussion, and we'll have closing words if there are no any other comments. Um, you know, I just want to, I probably you get this question quite frequently during the Cold War about the, the Glens, Mington, and the Pressler Amendments. Uh, we're waiting for Pakistan for US national security reasons. However, during that period, Pakistan violated the terms and conditions set out to it, as well as the United States chose to look the other way too for its own national security considerations. And eventually in the 1990s, the Pressler Amendment went in, uh, agreement went into effect ending all military, government military sales to Pakistan. You know, so hypothetically, if we have the deal in the loose liberal sense, what are some of the institutional checks and balances? Uh, and if such, to prevent something like this repeating. And there was huge amount of bad blood that went into the whole US-Pakistani relationship because of, because of this, each side accusing the others of you know, uh, various issues. So how would you propose, how would you respond to that? Mm -hmm. I think you, you're, you're making the point that I started with, which is that the punitive side of this is unlikely to have any real effect uh, on, on Pakistan, that you know, other sanctions or, you know, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest those are forthcoming. There's you know, some discussion you saw the withholding of the coalition support funds. You know, maybe there's um, some threat to you know, military assistance um, to, to Pakistan. But I, I don't think those, those kinds of measures would likely have any real effect. Um, and I think you know, for me, it's much more on the incentive side of the, the equation, um, you know, sustaining the possibility that there's a path to, to Pakistan to, to join some of the nuclear regimes. If you close off that path permanently, then what incentives are there for Pakistan to change the behavior that we're concerned about? Um, and so it's, it's you know, finding ways to, to work with those incentives. Um, that doesn't mean that things go absolutely smoothly. Um, you know, the, the kinds of steps that we had suggested in our report were things that would be concrete and indicative of changing views about the utility of nuclear weapons. And that's where we were looking for, for evidence of change. Um, I think there's you know, real questions about the feasibility of, of these kinds of steps. Um, it's, uh, it's clear in the reaction to the, 
to our report and then to the, to the news that there may be some you know, potential for discussion, um, you know, the reaction in Pakistan was, was quite severe. Uh, and there was a, a real closing of ranks. Uh, the military has essentially rejected any possibility of, of any sort of constraints. Um, so I think that the space for that at this point, if, if there was ever any space, the space is, is even narrower now. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think that there's the, the logic that I, that I laid out is a simple one, um, and I think that there's, there's a rationale for it. But again, um, that would require changes in Pakistan that are, are difficult to foresee at this point. Do you have any? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll say broadly that for all the sort of the ideas we've sort of put on the table today, whether we think that what's driving Pakistani behavior is revisionism, whether we want to sort of engage them on questions of strategic deterrence, whether we want to try to persuade them, dissuade them about sort of nuclear war fighting, and all these require some level uh, of engagement um, or some sort of like interaction. I don't think the changing the narratives or the discussion points on any of those areas will be advanced by cutting off ties or sort of you know, trying to sort of uh, maybe maybe the the coercive threat of that might have some sort of value, but the actual implementation of total cutoff of military to military or uh, engagement and ties. Uh, I don't think there's any good evidence to suggest that that works. And while I would say that the evidence for engagement is mixed, it seems to be uh, somewhat better. And I also say that, you know, even if at the end of the day we're dealing with Pakistan where there's a military with sort of a dominant narrative that has a lot of control over the, the public debate and social space, we know from experience from dealing with a lot of regimes that are like much tougher to crack in some ways, that these are not necessarily homogenous units, that there are always internal debates, that there are moderates within these institutions, even if they have professional incentives uh, for advancement within them. And we've seen with Pakistan that there have been internal debates in the past, right? So we know that there were, there's pushback on sort of the strategic and tactical utility of Cargill. We know now from sort of officers who have retired that there was a lot of debate about whether they, Pakistan should proceed into North Waziristan after South Waziristan operations in late 2009, early 2010. So we see that there's evidence of these debates, and I think we're more likely to have some influence on them for engaged with them rather than dissociating ourselves from it. Yeah, yeah I, you know, so um, I don't necessarily, you know, I, I agree with Samir uh, that um, we should engage Pakistan. You have to engage Pakistan, and we should not retreat into sanctioning Pakistan and you know, isolating it in any ways, that is not going to have a positive impact. But I think, but there, but there are two issues. One is simply looking at these non-proliferation issues and movement on various treaties and norms and um, strategic arms control and tactical nuclear arms control you know, in isolation. And the other is linking it to some, you know, or putting it into a broader geopolitical context and within the context of the state's grand strategy. And I don't think at least for me, I cannot understand how progress could be made on persuading Pakistan to turn around on these nuclear issues without Pakistan making movement on its grand strategy. And I think the United States needs to engage Pakistan on both fronts simultaneously. I would argue just as a corollary to that, that it's hard to imagine success uh, in this area without also engaging India in some way. Uh, and oh. that uh, there, there has to, for a while now and for various reasons, there hasn't really been any consideration of India uh, in the U.S. policy towards Pakistan and vice versa. And I think that that's um, not helpful in a variety of ways and needs to be corrected. On that note, thank you. <laughs>